Friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 this evening. We're working our way through this book, and we are tonight at verses 17. We'll be studying through 24, though I'll be reading through 28 to catch some context. Ephesians chapter 4. Somebody once said, there is only one unanswerable argument against Christianity. Christians. Christians are called to be different from the world. Jesus said to be in the world, but not of the world. Be different from it. But we are not as different as we ought to be. We are not as different as we one day will be. But no Christian is what they used to be. We want to consider that this evening. What is it supposed to look like to be a Christian? What kind of life are we to live if we know the gospel? From Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, let me invite you to consider then God's word. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. That you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would be our teacher tonight. We pray that you would come by the Holy Spirit, enlighten our eyes in the knowledge of Christ. Illuminate our path, teach us your way, and help us to walk in it. We pray that we'd see Jesus, pray that you'd help us, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Christians, then, Paul says, are supposed to be different because we are different. Walk here, he uses this metaphor, for life, for living, all of life, the way that you live, he says, is supposed to be different. He says here, don't walk like a Gentile, don't live like a Gentile, or ethne, the the nations, don't live, in fact, he's saying to many of these people, don't live like you used to live, (laughs) like everybody else lives, being a Christian means something different, so he's... Now, we have to say this at the outset. He's not saying by this, you know, well, Gentiles drive cars. He wouldn't be saying that to us in our day. Gentiles drive cars. You shouldn't drive cars. You should drive a horse and a buggy. 
The Gentiles use medicine. You shouldn't use medicine. Gentiles get blood transfusions. You shouldn't get blood transfusions. Or Gentiles work in government. You shouldn't work in government. A lot of Christians have said, some Christians have said all those things at some point over time. That's not what he's saying at all when he says we should be different. What is he saying we should be? How should we be different? I want to unpack this passage by asking three questions of it. Number one, who is it that's commanding you this? Second, what is it that he commands? And thirdly, why does he command it? Who, in the first place, is commanding you here? Who's telling you what to do? As Paul opens here at verse 17 when he says, Now this I say, and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do. Listen, who are you listening to as you try to figure out what God wants you to do? That's my question for you. Paul says, listen to Jesus. He's saying, listen to me, but I'm testifying on behalf of the Lord. And frankly, he's an apostle. He was told by Jesus exactly what to tell God's people. That's what it means to be an apostle. So he's not just giving you his own private opinion here. This isn't Paul saying, well, I really think it might be a good idea for some of you to try to live this way. He's saying, God says, this is, in fact, I insist on it. He says, you must live differently. And he's saying, this is God saying this to you. But there are lots of other voices telling you how you ought to live. Telling you what kind of person a Christian ought to be. Paul says, you know what you should do? You should let God tell you that. And then he says, and here's what he says. Okay, now I want to say a word about this. That doesn't mean that everything Paul writes here is easy to understand just because it's from God. God has a much bigger mind than the rest of us. He also chose to give us a Bible that is clear about the main things, but not equally clear about everything. And, and so this is a passage that is in some ways difficult to understand. In fact, your translations will take it very differently. If you are tracking with me with some other version of the Bible, you might be asking this question. Is Paul in verses 22 through 24 where he says, put off the old man, be renewed, and put on the new man. Is Paul saying uh, that you have to do something? Is he commanding you to put off and put on? Or is Paul reminding you of what's already been done when you came to faith in Christ? In other words, is he telling you something more to do here? Put off the old man, put on the new man. Or is he telling you something that has been done? You've already put off the old man. You've already put on the new man. And I realize whatever that means, we haven't even gotten to it yet. We're not going to get to it right now, but we will later. But, but you see the question. Is, is it a command? Or is it something that's already been done? And you need to remember it's been done. Your, your translations take it a variety of ways. The Greek can be translated either way. So it's hard to understand. And, and I just want to point that out because this is a challenging text. But it's helpful to be, to be reminded of that. Peter, the Apostle Peter, writes at the end of his second letter, some things Paul says are hard to understand. Okay, that's, Paul, that's Peter who lived with Jesus for three years. Say, so, yeah, you know, Paul's a little challenging in some places. I, I think this is one of those places. And I just want to say that ought to be an encouragement to us as we read the Bible. We're not going to understand everything immediately and quickly. One of the best things we can do then to learn is to compare the Bible with the Bible. To let one place in the Bible that is clear help you 
interpret another place in the Bible that isn't as clear. In other words, you take what's easy to understand, what's clear, and you lay it over next to what's, what's difficult, and you use what's clear to help you understand what's hard or unclear. That's, a, that's, that's the number one rule of Bible interpretation. You let the Bible interpret the Bible. What's easier to understand then about what Paul is saying is if you go to Colossians, the next book over. Two books over, I should say. Colossians chapter 3. If you have a Bible, turn there. Colossians is very much a parallel letter to Ephesians. It covers a lot of the same material. In fact, Colossians 3 on covers the same ground as Ephesians 4 on. Okay, so it's an overlapping letter. Now look at the language of Colossians 3 verses 9 and 10. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You see what he did there? He said to you, you have already put off the old man. You have already put on the new man. That's the way you should take Ephesians 4. This is something you already did when you heard Christ. When you came to faith in Christ. When you met Christ, however you want to describe it. When you were converted. When you became a Christian. The old man was put off. The new man was put on. It's already done. Now I want to say, this may be hard to understand. and We haven't gotten explaining what that means. I realize that. But it's even harder to live. But you'll never live it if you don't understand it. But even if you understand it, it's not easy to live. I'm not going to clear up everything for you tonight. I don't have a magic pill for you tonight that will make being a Christian easy, living it easy. It took Jesus sweating drops of blood in contemplation of the agony of his betrayal, torture, and crucifixion to clear the way for God to bring you into his family and make you like Jesus. If it took that, it's not going to be simple and casual for you then to begin to live like him. That's a good reminder, friends, that as we, as we approach this text and ask, well, what is God telling us to do? We have to go back to Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, first of all. You have to re- at least revisit it in your heart and say, I understand the gospel. When Paul says, I'm to live this way in Ephesians 4, he is not saying, I have to do this to get saved. That's Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, and how God rescued you. You need to be saved to live this way. You don't live for God in order to get life from God. You have to get life from God in order to then begin to live for God. you got to have the life before you can live it. you got to have salvation before you can express it. And that comes only by grace and not by your works. So this is a text that for Christians, walk this way because Christ has saved you to walk this way. So under the first point, I just simply ask you this question. Who are you listening to tell you how you should walk? You need to be listening to the Bible. Not man's opinion, but God's word. And whatever I'm doing up here as a pastor or teacher or anybody's doing when they crack open the Bible, the best we're ever doing is simply saying, and this is what God is saying to you. Are you listening to him? Are you just following your own opinion? Or what's just out there? 
So that's the first question. Get your information about how to live from him. What is it he commands them? What is it he's actually telling us to do? Well, he says that you must, verse 17, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And then he goes on at length to tell you what that life is like. He's reminding you, for some of you anyway, what it was like for you when you were a pagan. And you lived like a pagan. And for some of us, that is our history. If you didn't grow up in a Christian family, and you went on the downward cycle into the sort of the depths of depravity, as some of us did, and know something of what Paul is talking about in our own experience. Paul is reminding you, this is, this is how you once lived. Don't live like this any longer. What does he say? Well, the five or six things, friends. He says, well, in the first place, this is how you used to live. Don't live like this. You walked in the futility of your mind, end of verse 17. The word futility means empty. It's characterized by pointlessness. Uh, to this way of thinking, nothing in life is eternal. It ha- nothing in life has purpose or meaning. So neither then do the events or achievements or relationships of your day have any eternal purpose or meaning. Everything's just futile, pointless. And you were, he says, beginning of verse 18, you were darkened in your understanding. That's a pretty harsh. He's going to say some other things that sound pretty harsh too. You were ignorant and other things. You don't understand that Paul is not, Paul's talking to a Greek culture that we all know and look back on and say, you know, well, the ancient Greeks actually, they achieved a lot. I mean, their artwork, their architecture, their patterns of government and civilization still in some ways exist to this day. You can go to their remarkable buildings that still stun the world. Their engineers created aqueducts that, that still thousands of years later carry water for hundreds of miles. They wrote literature that, that moves the minds and hearts of people to this day. So, so Paul is being imbalanced here. He's not trying to depict the positive side of their culture. But what he is saying is this. They were futile and they were darkened in this way at least, as I think John Piper puts it here very well. You know, even if I have three doctoral degrees and I know 10,000 facts, I am ignorant If I don't know the divine meaning or the purpose of those facts and how they relate to the great things of eternity, you can know a tremendous amount. But if it's not related to knowing God and what it's for, the Bible says then you're darkened in your understanding. And likewise, he says it's it's even more than that. He says, he says, you are alienated middle of verse 18 alienated from the life of God. You were, you were excluded from the, from the life of God. Probably what he means here is the life that God gives, spiritual life. Jesus put it this way in John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life. He's speaking to the Father. This is eternal life they, that they may know you, the, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life means knowing God, and he says they didn't know God. So no matter how healthy or active or happy or productive they were, no matter how inventive they were as people, if they don't know Jesus, 
They're severed from the only spiritually and eternally lasting life, knowing God. And why is that? Why is this the case? Because of the ignorance that is in in them due to the hardness of their hearts. In other words, he says the problem is the hardness of the heart. The the problem is they're, they're actually morally culpable here. In other words, he's saying it's not that God hadn't revealed himself to them. That he hadn't made himself plain in the world that exists. The heavens declare his glory. The skies proclaim the work of his hand. He unveils himself day after day in what is made. And likewise through his word. And even somewhere in your conscience there's a sense of the divine. A sense of responsibility to your maker. He's revealed himself. But what have we done? Paul says in Romans 1. What have we done? We have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. We've pushed it down. We've shoved it away. We said, Father... I don't want anything to do with you. I don't give a rip about what you think. This is what Adam did. And Eve in the garden, this is what we've all done. Our problem isn't that God hasn't given us enough information. Our problem with God is the fact that we don't like him. We don't want him to be God to us. We're committed to our own independence from him. And he says... Verse 19, it gets worse. They have become callous. Some of you became callous before you came to Christ. You were hard-hearted. You were like Frodo. Frodo, who got his heart's affections wrapped up in the ring. And at some point, all he could think about, all that he desired was the ring. So much to the point that though he'd been sent on the mission that he volunteered for to destroy the evil ring, when he got to the moment of doing it, he couldn't pull the trigger. He couldn't drop the ring. And even, listen, even the voice of his dearest friend, Sam, couldn't persuade him because his heart had a callous on it. It was Hard. This is what Paul is saying. And and then he says, more than that. They have become callous, verse 19, and have given themselves up to sensuality. Here he means the desire to have what doesn't belong to you, trampling on anybody to get it. He's talking about sexual sin here. And the attitude that says, I don't care who I hurt to get what I want. They are, he says, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It results, he says, basically in a life that's absolutely out of control. Where you are no longer the master of the things that you enjoyed and pursued, but you discover that you have actually been mastered by those very things. And when you tried to get yourself free of it, you couldn't. It kept drawing you back. The lusts of your heart kept bringing you back time and again. He's talking the language of addiction here. They've given themselves up to it. And their life is spun out of control. Now, we have to say this. Paul is not just talking about sexual issues. He is using a word in reference to that. But there's all kinds of issues. We get hooked into our heart that don't let us go. You see examples of those in verses 25 through 28 when he says, therefore put away falsehood. 
Or in verse 29, he says, be angry, but don't sin. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal. He picks up three classic examples of things that get their talons hooked in our hearts, right? Lying. Because telling the truth about myself would expose me and make me vulnerable. And I'm so committed to me and protecting me and defending me that I'm determined for no one to know the real me for fear they'll reject me. And so I lie and I pretend. Or I get angry. And he's talking about unjust anger here that grabs hold of us and, and, and enslaves us. Not righteous anger over evil. We ought to have that. But anger because people don't do what I want them to do. Or because people get in my way on my trek to do what I want to do. Or he speaks here of theft, of robbery, of, of taking what's not mine because I've got to have it. Or hoarding what is mine because I simply can't share it. Because stuff has got its hooks in my heart. And I'm enslaved to money. I'm enslaved to stuff. I'm, I'm so committed to it that I've got to take it from those, to, from those it belongs to. Or if I have it, I've got to hoard it. Because I couldn't possibly give it away. What are all these things but an addiction to me at my core? I'm interested in me at any cost. This is what he's describing. Does that sound familiar to anybody here tonight? An unrestrained, unchecked pursuit of sensuous, sinful passions, pride, lust, money, pleasure. Paul says, this is is how you live. This is how people live. Praise the Lord if you've been spared going down this road into its depths. Paul says a hard heart leads to ignorance of God and alienation from him and a darkened understanding and a futile life. John Piper, I think, says it well. Nothing of eternal significance is accomplished. Life is one big ash heap of wasted weeks and years. There's no service to the king of ages, so it's all meaningless in the end. Like a man, I love this illustration, like a man who works hard planting trees and landscaped flower beds in a new housing project and then watches them get bulldozed because he was just doing his own thing and he never consulted the master plan for where they belonged. There's only futility in the end without relating all that you do to God. That's what he's describing here. Don't live like this. John Calvin concludes about this verse, by the way, Let men now go and be proud of free will, whose guidance is here marked by so deep disgrace. And all the while you thought you were expressing your free will to do whatever you pleased, you were binding yourself and being bound by the thing that you loved that wasn't God. Becoming enslaved by it. This is where it all leads. This is the road where it heads. Many people are restrained by God, thankfully. And don't see the full expression of this in its extreme, like as we read here. 
He's generalizing. But this is where it all leads, friends. This is the life you are on. Don't go down that road anymore. That's his command. It's not for a Christian to do. Don't go down this road anymore. So why? And this is where we end. Why? Why does he command us not to live this way any longer? He gives you two reasons and two cautions. First reason. Well, you see his language here. Why? Verse 20, but this is not the way you learned Christ. This is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard and were taught in him. Okay, his first reason is this. This is not the way that you learned Christ. That is a very weirdly worded sentence. We don't usually speak of learning a person. We, we learn facts. We learn figures. We don't normally say, I learn a person. I learn Spanish, but I don't learn Sam. But here he says, we've learned Christ. And, and maybe what he means is this. We've come to know him. We've come to understand him. We've come to relate to him. And everything about the Christian life is connected to him. Notice what he says. You didn't learn Christ this way. What was the subject of your learning? Christ. You didn't learn Christ this way. And if indeed you heard him and have been taught in him, and he doesn't mean you've heard about him. The the word about is not in your Greek. You've heard him. You actually heard the voice of Christ speaking through his word to you. You've encountered him. He's, he's, He's the subject of your learning. He's the teacher of your learning. Everything is about him. He says, don't go down this way. This is not the way you learn Christ. I I think it's helpful here. John Newton, I I, I used John Newton last week, I think, or two weeks ago, a long hymn poem. We actually sang John Newton this week. We sang John Newton last week. I have a John Newton idolatry, I think. He's certainly the Christian hymn writer I most personally identify with myself. But I just love his hymns. But he was a, a slave trader. Don't identify with that. He was a slave trader. He was captain of a slave ship at one point. He had a vile mouth, so vile, he says, that other sailors were abhorred. They were disgusted. They couldn't believe the things he said. Shocking a sailor is a big deal. He also lived a life, as he describes it, of greedy sexual sin before he came to faith in Christ. He was a fornicator. He was a slave captain traveling to Africa. Satisfying his lusts and passions. And then he was changed and he became a Christian and a pastor. What changed him? He says it this way in a, in a hymn he wrote. He says, in evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never till my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but now my tears are vain. Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. A second look he gave, which said, 
I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die that thou mayst live. Thus, conclusion, thus, while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace, it seals my pardon too. With pleasing grief and mournful joy, my spirit now is filled that I should such a life destroy, yet live by him I killed. See what Newton is saying? The cross stopped me in my tracks. It stopped my wild career. I caught one look of Jesus in his eyes, and I knew I put him on the cross, and his eyes looked and said, I did this for you. I was glad to be here for you, to rescue you. I loved you. You learned Christ, he said, and you learned about the cross. You learned what sin did to him. How can you live in it anymore? But there's a second reason he says that we are to stop living this way. It's because you've become a different person. The old is gone. The new has come. That's his language here. You were taught in him to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. At verse 24, and to put on the new self. Created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. You were taught, he says, to put off the old and to put on the new. You're new. You're a new creature. God has already, by the Holy Spirit, made you alive with Christ. And you have a new nature in Christ. And you're different than you used to be. And you can't live like you used to live. It's a contradiction of who you are. And yet what a contradiction when we do live like we used to. It's a contradiction of who you are. It's not what you were made for. It's not what you're redeemed for. Uh, You see this in a variety of places. In Ephesians 2, verse 10, we already encountered it when he said, It's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God. For we are, Ephesians 2, 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before and that we should walk in them. You are God's poem. His work of art, his workmanship. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You're new. You're a new creation. Romans 6, if you have your Bible, turn there. Romans 6 verses 6 through 8. By the way, I think Ephesians 4 here is just shorthand for all that he says in Romans 6 and 7. But Romans 6, verse 6, he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him. Your old man was crucified with Christ, the Bible says. The Bible is saying you were there with Jesus on the cross. He didn't just die for you, which he did. But it is though you were there with him, dying with him. And the old man that you were is gone and dead and buried. And Jesus has been raised to newness of life. Romans 6. Look at his language here. Um, Verse 9. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. And you have been raised with Christ. You've been united to him. Uh, Look. 
Your old man, in other words, is not just your personal history. It's, it's actually your earlier life as a child of Adam united to Adam in the works of Adam under the powers of this world. And, 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 and the Bible is saying you're no longer a prisoner to that world. You're no longer that person. Your identity is not in Adam. When you believed in Christ, whenever that was, whether you knew you were an old man or not, whether you knew you were tied to Adam or not, your tie to the old Adam was broken when you believed in Jesus. And you put off the old man. And you were united to Christ. You were bound to him. And, you, and he's the new Adam. And you have become in him a new man. So the Bible can say you died with Christ. And you laid it aside. And you've been raised with Christ to newness of life. This is a statement of fact. It's not a command for you to obey. You are not who you used to be. Now listen. Every time you're tempted, the enemy or one of his cohorts, somebody is whispering in your ear. Sin living in you is whispering in your heart. You can't do anything but sin. This is all you've ever been. This is all you'll ever be. This is who you are. And the Bible says to you, that's not true. And you need to listen to the Bible. You're new. You're different. You're alive with Christ. Because your old man has died, that does not mean sin in you has died. You've died to sin as an authority to command you, but sin in you, indwelling in you, living in you. Romans 7 here, friends. Sin hasn't died in you. It still loves what it loves and it wants to do what it wants to do. But Paul is saying you are already new. You don't have to work harder to become new. God made you new. You don't have to slave away for God to get life. God already gave you life. Be what you have already become. Be what you have already become. It's God's creation and he did it. But there are two cautions here. And so, so uh, to close, there are two cautions. Number one, be realistic about this. And the second is that you do need to be renewed in an ongoing way. In the first place, be realistic. It takes a lifetime to work out into our thinking and our living the implications of what I've just shared with you tonight. Friends, if this is the first time you're hearing this, you don't understand most of what I'm saying. And that's not because, oh, there's some super spiritual secret knowledge that you don't get to have access to. It just means you need to grow in maturity and you need to dig into these texts and learn them. And you need to experience the Christian life and what it means to walk with Jesus. And you'll grow as you obey. And as you live with Jesus, you'll learn with Jesus. It's not simple. You've already put off the old man. You've already put on the new man. But you've not yet grown into a life of consistency with your new identity. You're a very inconsistent person. Every Christian is. It's not that sin has suddenly become uninteresting to you. Or sin has quietly walked away from your life and said, I'm not going to trouble that person anymore. We know ourselves. The more you've been a Christian, the longer, the more mature you are, the better you know what lusts, what pride, what self-centeredness lives in you. 
To live as if we have not been loved with an everlasting love and God has not sent his son to die for our sins. That's the common experience of Christians. To forget. So new doesn't mean sin is gone. It lives in you. So we just need to be realistic here, friends. And that's why he tells you in Ephesians 4, this is the last thought. That's why he tells you in the midst of saying put off, Verse 22, and put on, verse 24, in the midst of it, at verse 23, he said, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And that one is different. The, word, the, the, the mood of the word he uses, the kind of word he uses, means that's present tense. It's, it's a continual inward renewal. We need to keep on being renewed And yet it's a passive mood here. It's not something you can do for yourself. It has to be done to you. It's the work of God. In other words, you always live independence. You'll never live a day in your life as a Christian in which you do not need the Holy Spirit. In which you do not need to depend upon God to change you. Paul is reminding you here that you need to be continually inwardly renewed by God. And it's not something you can do for yourself. Active voice, when I say passive voice, what we mean is this. Active voice means, you know, like I wash your feet. Middle voice means I wash my own feet. Passive voice means my feet are washed. Somebody washes my feet. We don't renew ourselves. Nobody else can renew us. Except for God alone. And we need to be inwardly renewed. That's that's why Augustine prayed the prayer. Oh Lord, command what you will. And give what you command. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that same prayer. Tell us what you want us to do, but give. Give to us the desire, the willingness, the power to do what you have called us to do and do it again and again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.